Unlock the power of your mind. This is Provocative Enlightenment with Elvin Taylor. Welcome and thank you for joining us today. The next hour is devoted to learning something more. Not just about the world of shoes and ships and sealing wax, but about how, what, and why we believe as we do. A time for the open-minded and a time for those willing to question what they think they know or what they may believe. Those willing to be uncertain for an hour. I'm Eldon Taylor and this is Provocative Enlightenment. All right, you're invited to join our chat room by going to provocativeenlightenment.com forward slash chart. Chat. C-H-A-T. I'll get that said. My partner Ravinder is here in the studio and monitoring the chat room now. So Rav, say hello to everyone out there and share your thoughts on last week's show with Professor Ian Church. Hello, everybody. It is wonderful to have you here. Um, I love the show last week. I think that's one of the most important topics uh, right now. You know, I I find the divisiveness in the world really upsetting. It's just personal to me, which is why I did the intellectual humility course at Coursera myself, and that was how we came across uh, Ian Church's work. Um, I would recommend everyone do that course. I think if you want to be part of the solution, then, you know, the stuff that, that was covered last week is absolutely vital. So go out to Coursera, just do a quick search for intellectual humility. You'll find it. It's easy. It's free. The course itself is um, easy to do. And yeah, be part of the solution. Okay. In this week's spotlight, I would like to discuss the American dream. Webster defines the American dream this way. The ideal that every U.S. citizen should have an equal opportunity to achieve success and prosperity through hard work, determination, and initiative. This ambitious statement is often trivialized with idioms of baseball and apple pie. That said, if we take a moment to think about the true meaning, that every U.S. citizen should have an equal opportunity to achieve success and prosperity through hard work, determination, and initiative, then we can quickly understand why so many Americans own their own business. Indeed, the most recent census report, Survey of Business Owners, estimated the number of business owners at 20.4 million in 2007. Data shows that's ever increasing. The fact is, according to a recent poll, given a, and I'm going to quote now, given a choice of starting their own business or working for someone else, 57% of Americans would opt for the former, while 40% would choose to work for someone else. Among people who are actually employed, the margin in favor of being their own boss is even greater. 61% to 38%. This preference is especially characteristic of young people by a margin of 72% to 27%. They would prefer to start their own business rather than work for someone else. Close quote. With ambition this high, you would think that more young people would be studying finances, business law, 
courses of that nature, but most U.S. high school students never have to take a personal finance class. Why is that? Is this something that's supposed to fall to the responsibility of the parent? Well, think about that for a moment, because with interest rates low and credit easily available, many people find themselves seeing red. The numbers are revealing. According to recent data compiled by the Federal Reserve Bank of New York, total credit card balances amounted to $784 billion in the second quarter of 2017, a $20 billion increase from the previous quarter. What's more, the average person dies with $67,000 in debt. Now, I suggest there's a disconnect here perhaps even a form of cognitive dissonance, in that so many people wish to own their own business, and yet their money management skills appear sorely lacking, both from a parental standpoint and from these young people who want to start their own business. Now, this commentary up until now says nothing about the social welfare programs that somehow are becoming more a part of the American dream. Webster may need to redefine the American dream and add in free health care, free college education, free money every month, etc. Perhaps I'm a dinosaur of sorts in that I believe in the original American dream. That said, I'm also aware of the rate at which new businesses fail. Rand Paul recently repeated an old number. 90% of businesses started fail within 10 years. Well, the actual numbers are 20% of small businesses fail in their first year, 30% of small businesses fail in their second year, and 50% of small businesses fail after five years in business. Finally, 30% of small businesses remaining fail in their 10th year in business. There's much more to business than the financial side of matters, but without the knowledge necessary to succeed, together with the tenacity and what Webster calls hard work, determination, and initiative, the business will be undervalued and or fail. It's time we taught more about business and finance in our public schools in order to better prepare people to succeed. It's also time we renewed our appreciation for hard work and actively encouraged it. I want to see people truly live out their own American dream and succeed and prosper. Those are my thoughts, and I always welcome yours. What are yours, Ravinder? You know, I found all of that interesting, but what got my attention the most is when you talk about hard work being part of the American dream. You know, I wasn't brought up in the United States. I was born in India, brought up in England. I'm very aware of, you know, how many people around the world want to come to America for the American dream. They want the opportunity. But when I first came over here, you know, I was very aware that you don't have the vacation times here that you have in England. You know, I'm still, I mean, 30 years later, I'm still pushing you to give me Boxing Day. I've got to have Boxing Day for everyone out there who isn't aware. That's the day after Christmas. And in England, that is a bank holiday. 
but you don't have that. I mean, how can you have Christmas and then you go right back to work? Um, but th- this idea of hard work being part of the American dream, America is, you know, the most prosperous country. There, there are opportunities here. So where other people, you know, can talk about, well, you don't have, um, you don't have all the vacation time, all the things that you don't have. Well, it's the hard work that made America what it is. And, I think it's a pretty great country, you know. Well, I I totally concur, of course, and you know how irritated I become when people suggest that work is a nasty word, you know. <laughs> but okay. But I still want Boxing Day. Uh, well, you're not likely to get it. <laughs> <laughs> Every week, I read some of your letters as our way of involving you while paying respect to the very important role you play in making this show successful. Our last live show featured Professor Ian Church, as we discussed, and we talked about his book and online course, Intellectual Humility. John wrote, interesting guest, I understand the importance of hearing others out, but your guest never really defined what it meant to be intellectually humble, or did I somehow miss this? Well, that's a good point, John. It seems there is no agreed-upon definition for intellectual humility, This is a relatively new field, and definitions together with appropriate parameters are still being worked out. That's the value to the course. But as we discussed during the show, there is no required humility to insisting that 2 plus 2 equals 4. But when it comes to those more ambiguous issues, where there exists no absolute right answer, that is, not in the sense of 2 plus 2 equals 4, The best we can offer today is listen intently, flesh out the other's perspective, contrast it with your own. It's likely that all parties to this sort of dialogue will be able to both discuss and learn from the exchange. Do you have anything you'd like to add to that, Rev? You know, I I did the course, so I you know I do have a little bit more information. I would say one of the other things is to respect the person that you're hearing. It's too easy these days just to disregard them, put them in a different category. Intellectual humility is about discerning um, who is an equal, and that's not in a class kind of way. That is to do with you know how much information they really have. Um, so, yeah, I mean, there are lots of factors in it. But when you respect the person that you're hearing, you're going to actually hear what it is that they say. Good point. Beth wrote, I loved his online course. Coursera is fabulous. So many free courses. And you can do them at your own pace and replay the videos as often as you like. Brian wrote, hardly any hour in my week goes by so fast as the hour I listen to provocative enlightenment. Zoom. I love that. Well, thank you, Brian. Daniel had this to say about last week's Spotlight on Humility and Civility. Excellent. Thank you. Now, for all of you out there, if you happen to miss a live show, you can hear our spotlights again by visiting our archives at provocativeenlightenment.com, or you can subscribe to my blog where you can print and share a copy by subscribing at eldentaylor.com. The blog is free, so subscribe today. Finally, we have a correction to last week's show. We received this letter. Thank you for the excellent interview with Dr. Ian Church on intellectual humility on the Provocative Enlightenment broadcast. Dr. Taylor drew out the very heart of his work and helped place it in a very relevant context. I am especially grateful for the generous promotion of our book 
Intellectual Humility, an Introduction to the Philosophy and Science, and for endorsing Ian's MOOC by the same name, the multi-online course. That the book is, let's see, I would like to humbly offer a slight correction to the broadcast, that the book is not authored by Dr. Church alone, as Dr. Taylor stated, but is co-authored by Dr. Church and myself. My humble offer is given in the spirit of Dr. Church's conception of intellectual humility, which claims that holding fast to a truth, like 2 plus 2 equals 4, is actually an intellectually humble stance. I can claim intellectual humility, but I also can't deny I might be motivated in no small part by the pride in what we accomplish together. From your wonderful response to the book, I'm going to label it proper pride and hope this email falls under the same category. Again, thank you for bringing Ian on your show and for furthering and valuing the notion of intellectual humility. Gratefully, Dr. Peter Errol Samuelson. My apologies, Dr. Samuelson. And, you know, once again, congratulations on a great book. Okay, that's all the time we're going to take for letters today, but we do love your comments, so please keep them coming. You can opine by writing to me at Eldon, that's E-L-D-O-N, at eldontaylor.com, or by joining me on Facebook at Dr. Eldon Taylor. We do sincerely appreciate your thoughts and ideas. Now to today's show, a timely show, especially if you think about how many people want to be in business for themselves. The Good Brand, How Companies Create Valuable Brands, with our guest, Attorney Michael Lasky. So let me tell you a little about today's guest. Michael Lasky is a practicing patent and trademark attorney and founding partner of Altera Law Group and is also with Stowell Rives, a Seattle law firm. He is also an internationally recognized speaker on the subject of making companies more valuable and profitable to investors or future sales. In addition to his law degree, Michael has a degree in electrical engineering, is a published author of several books, including his latest, The Good Brand, A Business Person's Guide to Building a Brand-Centric Country Company, <laughs> Country, by focusing on three rules of branding. He also trains companies how to patent the future. Now, that's interesting. In a course called Disruptive Engineering. On that, let's get him in here. Welcome to Provocative Enlightenment, Mr. Michael Lasky. Hi, Eldon. Thank you for inviting me. I'm honored to be on the show. Oh, it's indeed my pleasure. I've been looking forward to this since we first chatted. Uh, we like to know three things on this show, Michael. Who is the messenger? What is the message? And, of course, how do we use it? To that end, if we can, let's begin by what are you passionate about and how did you become the expert on brands and business values? Well, I, I think the uh, the best answer, it was... Um, by necessity, which is always the best reason to do something, I think. Um, I've been practicing law for a long time, and, and clients would come to me on a regular basis with concepts, and, and often they were brands, and they would come and say, uh, I've got this great idea, I've got this concept, and I'm going to call it X. And would you please just make sure that I own this concept X, both with patents and trademarks? Well, let's talk about trademarks or brands. Well. In so many cases, perhaps 90% of the cases, uh, a client would come to me with a brand that could never be an effective brand, could never be owned, could never be protected, and most importantly, could never be sold. And the reason why 
being sold is so important is so many businesses today are started from from zero, but when they reach a point where they're attractive, then they're purchased for uh, amounts of money that are far in excess of anything they would ever expect. And in fact, what companies are buying, these companies that are purchasing the small companies, they're buying the brands. So I had this problem. Clients were coming to me and saying, would you please just take care of this problem? And my answer had to be, you don't know what the problem is. You won't have a brand if I pursue what you want to do. Well, this is not a good time for a company to be hearing about that. And I couldn't find anybody who wanted to solve the problem. The lawyers weren't terribly interested. The marketers, well, often the marketers just don't want to have anything to do with legal issues. It's somebody else's problem. So I decided that those two problems had to be brought together, and hence the book, The Good Brand, which brings together the elements that you need to know to actually make a business that could be sold or could be purchased. You know, if I look online, Investopedia defines a brand this way. A brand is more than a name. It is the sum total of a consumer's experience with a recognizable product. Does that fit what you mean by brand? Yeah, that would be very accurate. So there's two parts to a brand. There's the legal part, we'll call it the trademark. That is the legal term for some property that you can own, intellectual property that you can own, and you can transfer to a buyer. That's a key thing. If you can't transfer it, they're not buying anything. But then there's the bet that brand personality, which is the thing that, that, you, that the owner of the brand wants to implant in the purchaser, the customer, often subliminally. And let, let me give you an example of one you know very, very well, but you don't think about at all, and it's working all the time. Apple computer. Apple or the iPhone or the uh, MacBook sell for substantially higher prices than their competitors. And how do they get away with it? Well, from the very beginning, I would say after the Apple IIe, Steve Jobs had two goals that he infused in the company and made every product always do the same thing. And that is, number one, the product will be easy to use. And we forget, because once upon a time, Microsoft was not as similar to the Apple operating system as it is today. There was a huge gap. And uh, although they've been closing the gap, Apple is always one step ahead. And if you want to buy the easiest to use product, it's going to be the Apple. The second element of the Apple brand, which they never talk about, but they always do, is when you buy an Apple product, it's going to be, well, I'll use the, use the word beautiful, but people might call it cool. But the fact is, when you buy a MacBook, it's just, it's a work of art in, in industrial design. And why can't the other computer companies do the same thing? Well, they absolutely can, but it's not their brand. It's not in their DNA. DNA. So why is it important? Well, when you produce a product which has its personality built into it, and you do this for years after year, or year after year, then when you bring out a new product that your customer base doesn't necessarily want or even understand, uh, you get a reasonable look. Example, the Apple Watch. People uh, saw this watch and said, well, what do I need this thing for? Number one, why do I need a watch? Because your own iPhone has eliminated my need for a watch in the first place. Now you want to sell me a watch. Well, but the Apple customer base said, well, you always make an interesting product. It's easy to use and it's beautiful. I'll have a look. Now, how many companies can guarantee that the next product they bring out, their customer base is going to say, okay, I'll give it a look and maybe I'll buy it. 
They don't because they haven't built that connection with the brand, the personality that says you can count on what I'm going to do time after time. I find this to be a very important uh, um, construct, especially, I suppose, in light of, you know, how many people there are today and, and, and an ever-growing number. I was I was surprised at how many young people want to start their own business. Um, and, and we see, you know, the NASDAQ yesterday was at an all-time high, and, and we see all these new startup companies, and we've seen, you, you, we've got this history of, of, you know, two brothers in the basement or two friends in the in the garage creating a business that within a few years sells for billions of dollars. So let me ask you this. First of all, you heard the spotlight today, Michael. What have I got wrong? <laughs> uh, I would say this. You have said that the American dream is to be achieved by hard work, determination, and initiative. And I, I really have to add one more, and that is knowledge. Uh, you can work really hard at something and never accomplish anything if you are ignoring the uh, accumulated base of knowledge that exists out there. We're so fortunate we have the Internet, which pretty much covers everything up to 1999. And so it's a mistake to assume that you know what you need to know. The, the, the scariest part of starting a business are people who don't know what they don't know. We hear that all the time, but it's a real truism. There are things you just, just do not know, and if you are going to start a business, you don't have that many chances to make mistakes. And one of the greatest mistakes is that companies or startup companies uh, believe that the product or the service they're offering is going to carry the day. It's going to help. You need to have a great product. You need to have a great offering. But what really will carry the day, and honestly, what will get your company sold and be, become valuable and worth being bought, is that you've created that brand that connects you to that customer base. I mean, take a look at in Instagram. Instagram is a very, very simple company. The concept is we have an app and the app does certain things. Now, everyone uh, who's written uh, an app could re replicate that app, but uh, Instagram has so much customer connection through its brand that they're basically uh, indefensible. There's no one who could replace them quickly without creating some new uh, product or service that the public needs, and the brand is what keeps them alive. So now I know you're an attorney, and so this might be a self-serving question of a sort for attorneys. But do you think that, you know, if a person's going to create a business, should they sit down with a business attorney and discuss their ideas and begin with the brand right from the get-go? Well, absolutely. And, and that's not just a legal question. And as I said in my book, the, the problem is that this sort of falls in the middle of two disciplines. You know, imagine you're playing doubles tennis and your opponent hits the ball right between the two of you. And you look at each other and say, oh, I thought that was your ball. Well, that's what's going on with, with brands. Uh, the, the lawyers are saying that's not, not my problem, and the marketers are saying uh, that's not my problem. So imagine this. Suppose you had built, you selected a great brand, and I, we can talk about what great means later, but you selected a great brand, and you build a company uh, based on that brand, and you're about to sell it, and you go through a process called due diligence, which, which is where uh, the company tries to figure out 
what you own and what you don't. And very often, it is that you don't own your brand. Uh, one of your hometown heroes, um, Amazon, ran into that problem. It's hard to believe, but a company worth $30 billion, that was a long time ago, but back uh, about uh, 15 years ago, Amazon.com got a letter from a little bookstore in Minneapolis called Amazon Bookstore. And they wrote Jeff Bezos and said, we love what you've done to our brand, and we would like it back now. Hmm. Now, that is not a good letter to get if you're uh, Amazon, but it's a terrible letter to get if you're in the midst of a sale and you're a startup company because that's the end of your sale. And it might be the end of your company. Now, Amazon had an advantage, Amazon.com. They had that $30 billion, and they were able to buy their way out of the problem. But the problem should never have existed in the first place. Interesting. We have a break. When we get back from the break, I want to pick it up, uh, and, and I want to discuss some of, I, w- I want to go straight to your book and some of the, uh, the specifics that you do discuss in the book, Michael. We're speaking with Michael Lasky about his work in the book, The Good Brand. It's a great read. I've been in business for, well, I've been in business longer than I want to admit, some 40 years, and I'm going to tell you that there were many refreshing ideas and I learned a lot from it. So I suggest you get a copy of The Good Brand. If you're thinking at all about being in business or are in business, uh, it's one you're going to want to read. Now, we have a video for you today featuring a short introduction to what makes a great logo. So if you're not already in the chat room, now's the time to get on over there. And you can do that by going to provocativeenlightenment.com forward slash chat. Okay, do please stay tuned. We'll be right back. You're listening to Provocative Enlightenment with Elton Taylor. Change has never been easier. Whether you wish to lose weight, stop smoking, build better relationships, become creative, enjoy ultra prosperity, or simply relax and promote self-healing, InnerTalk has been repeatedly demonstrated effective in the most rigorous of scientific studies. Our customers love InnerTalk. Sean wrote, I have struggled with bulimia for over 30 years and have never been able to lose weight without restoring to it until I used InnerTalk. Vicki wrote, My hubby has been using the Stop Snoring CD and already his dangerous and raucous snoring levels have stopped. Celeste wrote, I recently graduated from Taft Law School with honors. I'm writing to tell you how much your InnerTalk CD, Excel in Exams, has helped me. With over 300 titles to choose from, there is something for everyone. Check it out today by going to intertalk.com. Unlock the power of your mind. This is Provocative Enlightenment with Alvin Taylor.
lovers and friends I still can recall Some are dead and some are living In my life I've loved them Loved of all these friends and lovers There is no one compares with you And these memories lose their meaning When I think of love as something new Though I know Welcome back. If you just joined us, we're chatting with Michael Lasky about his work and book, The Good Brand. Every week we ask our guests for their favorite music, music that has some real significance to them. Music psychology is a field of research with practical relevance in many areas, including intelligence, creativity, personality, and social behavior. All right, Michael, your chosen piece of music is In My Life, performed by Dave Matthews Band, the Dave Matthews Band. So tell us, what makes this music important to you? And how does it inform us about who you are? Oh, that's a tough one. I would have to say the interesting part of the music, perhaps, is that, you know, it's a Beatles song. And in my view, uh, Dave Matthews made it much better. I know if you're a Beatles fanatic, this is heresy. Uh, But uh, maybe it's relevant in, let me take you to a story about how something was really good and then something became much better. You mind if I go there? Yeah. So how many of you out in the audience, and you can raise your hand and I won't be able to see, owned a BlackBerry? And I I give talks all the time, and people uh, sheepishly raise their hands, and they they admit that they owned one. And there's some people out there who don't even know what it is. Definitely not a fruit. And it's not that long ago that that product came out, that the real first BlackBerry that we know of came out in 2002. And it was revolutionary. I have to admit, and I will admit, that it was a fantastic product, and it could do two things really well. You could talk on it. It was a great phone. And you could send email because it had a great keyboard and a trackball. And so 2002, it took the world by storm, and it was the product to own. Yet in five years, the company was in decline. By 2007 the iPhone came out. And here's where an improvement is very different from a revolutionary product. So the iPhone was not an improvement of the BlackBerry phone. It was a complete redefinition of the thing you hold in your hand. So the the, the BlackBerry was a really good phone and you could send messages. Steve Jobs said, it's not a phone. It's a complete command of the universe and by the way you can talk on it the breakthrough was the jobs figured out that this little handheld device could give you access not just to the internet but the use of apps with very little bandwidth you could do just about anything and oh by the way you could talk on it so you could hardly say that the uh, iphone was an incremental improvement over the what was actually a fine product the the BlackBerry. It was a complete redefinition of what existed before. And that's where people make great companies, is they figure out how to redefine 
something that might already exist in a way that it is not at all like the other, but incidentally similar. Does that make sense? Yeah, absolutely. I remember well the BlackBerry and how innovative it was, and I remember getting in line to get the very first brand new iPhone with all, I mean, you know, unbelievable little device. And, it, and of course, as you say, it revolutionized uh, how we think about telephones. You don't even really, most people today don't have hardline phones anymore. Your book discusses valuable brands. And um, I happen to notice that, and, and you brought it up several times, and since one of my areas of so-called expertise happens to be in subliminal, supraliminal, superliminal, and the influence, you have this beautiful golden apple on the cover of your book. Is that intentional? No, it's more of a Greek symbol, and it was not intended to relate to Apple Computer, and it doesn't even look like the apple, but it's just uh, sort of either a biblical or a Greek uh, uh, connection. Um, so it's, it's, it's incidental. Incidental. Well, it's a pretty powerful superliminal, I'll tell you that. I looked at your book and thought, okay, here's the apple of branding intelligence, you know, the icon, if you will. We know that brands have, you know, a lot of power and that uh, if we give a psychological uh, or conduct a psychological survey and we ask people about brands, say creativity, they will always choose the Apple uh, logo over the Microsoft logo. But if we ask them about mathematical uh, issues, they almost invariably will go to the Microsoft logo over the Apple logo. Have you looked at this kind of of uh, influence that branding has? Yes. Actually, that study you're referring to goes even further. And one of the things they did is they put a picture of the Apple logo in a room and asked people to come up with creative ideas about something or other. And then they did the same thing with the room uh, with the, the Microsoft logo, and they got better results with the Apple logo. And that was the only influence. The message is that the Apple brand stands for creativity, and the Microsoft brand stands for something else, and I'm not sure what it stands for, but they haven't spent a lot of time refining that. And that's where great brands are differentiated from uh, we just have a name, and it's kind of the name where we are. It's our URL, or it's our street address, or it's the person who founded it. But that is not a brand. A brand is when you infuse some message into a brand. And sometimes that infusion is really abstract. Let me give you an example. It's actually in the book. So a, a truck pulls up to your house, and you can't quite figure out you know, what the name on the truck is, but there's only one part of it you can see, and it's brown. Right. What is it? Well, what goes through most people's mind, at least it goes through my mind, is that's UPS. I ordered something from probably Amazon. I can't remember what it is, but I can't wait to get it. So what uh, uh, UPS has accomplished with this ugly color brown is by using it consistently, they don't even have to write their name on the product. Neither does um, Nike. They, many years ago, they got rid of the words. They have such broad, strong connections with their customer base that the words are irrelevant, and that's the point. As you strengthen your brand, we get a cerebral connection to our customers, not a faster, better, cheaper connection, which, of course, is a problem because someone else will always be faster, better, and cheaper. Yeah, no, I think your book does an excellent job, by the way, of fleshing this this difference out. 
uh, how often do you, however, get a client come to you? I mean, because normally, as you pointed out earlier, you know, an attorney doesn't spend time on the kinds of uh, questions I'm asking you now. Um, rather, that's a marketing person. And the marketing person um, has little or no knowledge about the legal aspects uh, of these brands. Uh, so uh, how how many, how, how I guess you're you're kind of a breed of your own. How many clients are coming to you just to find out what would be a good brand? Well, most of them come for the reason that they want to own the brand and is, you know, a, a trademark lawyer. That's one of the things we do. And and let me take you back uh, 20 years in my career, which was a turning point for me. I had a company come to me with a brand idea, and it was a really good concept, and it actually did succeed. And I, uh, they came to me as the second uh, attorney they came to because the first one had been unable to register their brand. And I told them I knew why they couldn't register their brand. It was not registrable because it was descriptive. Um, but they said, well, try and register it anyway. And um, I did. And by dumb luck, I would not say skill. By dumb luck, I got it registered. And all seemed to be fine, and they sold a bunch of uh, companies that they uh, products they were trying to sell. And they came back to me a couple years later, and they said, "You know, Mr. Lasky, we're really disappointed with you." And I'm thinking, "How can this be? I'm their hero. I did what nobody else could do." And they said, "Yeah, you got it registered, all right. And that's what we asked you, all right. But what you didn't tell us, and the most important thing that we really needed to know." is we should have never used this brand in the first place because we're going to have trouble with it forever. And the light bulb went off in my head, and I realized there was another part to being a great lawyer, and that was you get to see a lot of experiences, many of which don't work. And I've been pretty well trained in marketing, so the the uh, connection between marketing and law is absolutely essential in brand creation and brand protection. And so now what I do is a client will come in with an idea that is not going to work. And I say, well, I will be willing to do what you want if it's legal and ethical. But I can tell you the chances of your success have been vastly diminished. Now, do you want to talk about that? And most of the time they do. So it's a different way to look at the world. We need more more attorneys um, that practice uh, law the way you do, at least in the business world. Okay, I want to ask you about brand hijacking uh, before we get more fully into your book. How common is it, and what, what, what can someone do to prevent it? Well, there are different kinds of hijacking, if you will. There is the uh, counterfeit. That is where someone just simply copies exactly what you've got and tries to run with it as long as they can. This is a huge problem emanating primarily from Japan, but it's not just that. Uh, and then the other problem is someone picks a name that sounds like your name in the hope of, well, benefiting from your success, but not appearing to be a an exact knockoff. Both are huge problems. Um, obviously, from China, we're, we're having uh, an enormous amount of, of uh, counterfeiting going on. And the problem is it's, it's a bit of a whack-a-mole that uh, you get one and then it shows up somewhere else. The mistake that most startup companies make is they assume that it's uncontrollable and it's not so. There is much you can do. For example, 
obviously you register your trademark in the United States because that's where you're doing business. But if you want to have any hope of stopping counterfeiting in China, you have to register your trademark in China. Our U.S. trademark law doesn't apply. And if you just say, well, I don't have to do that because I'm not doing business in China, well, then you're losing the opportunity to stop the counterfeiting at the source. And, and as we know, the Chinese legal system isn't that strong, but the government will enforce, and but only if you've taken the minimum steps you have to take, which is register your trademark there. Interesting. I'm going to ask you, I'm going to take advantage of you now for a minute, Michael. I admit it right up front, okay? Um, one of our trademarks is Intertalk. In a sense, that's a descriptive because we talk to ourselves and it's about changing how, you know, what our self-talk is. I, I will often see people break inner talk, which we have trademarked as one word, into two words. And they will have an inner talk product, a rip-off product, if you will. My, did I create a problem when I choose, chose a descriptive brand well, let me back you up and, and, and not uh, give you a specific answer to your problem, but a more general answer that no anyone No free can legal use. advice today? Well, <laughs> Go ahead. I'd like to be able to give more people the answer. So here it is. You make a, cha- a choice when you choose what we call a weak trademark. And the choice is, I want to have people understand what I do and help me make my brand recognizable. But it's a choice kind of with the devil. And on the far end of the the spectrum, on the other end, is choosing a word that has no meaning whatsoever or a word that means nothing with respect to the product. So Google, which actually is a modification of a mathematical term, really doesn't mean anything, but it makes a very slight suggestion that it is a big thing, which it is, of course. Amazon is a real word, but has nothing whatever to do with the product. In fact, that was not the first name of the uh, Amazon.com company. It was Kadabra. And they backed off from that because they were afraid people would think it was cadaver. And I think they probably made a, make, a good, good move with that. So that's the strong stuff. The, the trademarks that just don't mean anything with respect to the product or with respect to your product. Or don't, they're not real words at all. Let's take one at the other end, the Weather Channel. All right. First of all, I often ask people uh, how many people watch the Weather Channel. And I, I usually get no hands. And the reason for that is that they don't need to watch the Weather Channel because they own the iPhone or some other phone. But nevertheless, the Weather Channel exists. And one of the issues with the Weather Channel is how can they defend the words Weather Channel when they are giving weather on a channel? And the answer is eh, not very well. And the consequence is there are other companies that come around with words that sound like that. The Weather Nation, uh, Weather Underground, with uh, which uh, Weather Channel solved by buying them. And so if you take advantage of choosing a weak trademark, you will live with a hemorrhage of problems that you can never fix. So my number one piece of advice in my three rules is don't make that mistake. Choose a strong trademark, one that means nothing whatever with respect to the product or doesn't mean anything at all. I know that's counterintuitive, but the goal is you're going to infuse in the brand your own message. And if it already says something, you're going to fight with yourself. So the short or long answer to your question is uh, there are better choices, but it's, there's, there's an impossible desire to choose weak trademarks. It's just it's innate in our 
um, character, but you got to fight it. And that's one of the things I spend a lot of time is teaching people to fight a mistake that they will live with forever. Yeah, I should have talked to you, of course, 30 years ago, but then 30 years ago, you weren't practicing this kind of law. So I'm going to, I'm going to take you to the next step now. Um, people create a brand. They come into your office. It's, it, you know, they can't trademark it or they, it's a weak brand and it's just not really working for them. How advisable is it to change a brand when you've been around for a period? Well, think of a bucket with holes in it. And if you've got a brand that has problems, either it's weak or there are other companies that own it and you don't have clear title to it, uh, you won't be able to sell the company. So you've got this bucket with a hole in it and every time you put time and money and equity into it, some of it's leaking out. And the worst brands have no bottom at all, so they're leaking like a sieve. And then the question is put, should I give up my brand equity and make a change? And in most cases, if your brand has problems like that, the answer is you're not really giving up as much as you think because you couldn't transfer this brand to another company because they'll immediately find out you have a title problem. It's kind of like, uh, I built my house, but half of it's sitting on my neighbor's yard. Should I move the house? Well, no, but no one will ever buy it. So the answer, I guess, is yes, move the house. So more often than not, you really should consider modifying your brand. It doesn't mean throwing out wholesale. You may add another word to your brand. You may change some other aspect of it, but sometimes you do have to start over. And uh, it's not nearly as hard as people think it is. And the, the, the downside of not doing it is you never solve the problem, and it only gets worse. You know, there's a parable about a guy with a bucket that uh, has holes in it and every day walks back and forth from his home to the well. And by the time he gets to his home, of course, um, most of the water's gone. However, after making this trip many, many times... There are the beautiful flowers that grow along that trail that he waters every day. I guess if you've done this, you may want to think about the flowers and uh, get a better bucket. (laughs) Most people, Michael, they get into business, think about, you know, ROI, profitability, da-da-da-da-da. And we used to think in terms of, well, your business is worth a multiple of whatever its annual gross sales are. You, however, take a different view to this, and um, and recently we can see that it's certainly justified with lots of companies. So break down for us the difference between a profitable business and a valuable business and why a profitable business may not just be as valuable as you think it is. Well, I will never tell you that you shouldn't have a profitable business. If you can't have a profitable business, you don't have a business. But let's assume that you had a choice. You had a choice of, uh, in everything you did, I would uh, focus on making the business more profitable and giving no time to making it more valuable. Okay, the business goes along for years. You've taken out the money you hope to get. And then it occurs to you, you might want to sell it. And then you find out it's unsaleable. And that's true of about 70% of businesses are completely unsaleable for various reasons. And a big one is they don't own the name that they think they own. So they're not selling any transferable value. They're selling their useless inventory or whatever else is left. So 
if you were going to start a business, then wouldn't it make sense to be thinking about both at the same time? And especially since most businesses these days grow to a certain level and they are acquired by other businesses, at least uh, with startups. And, and I work for a, uh, an organization as a mentor called Techstars, and they have a much better track record than, what is it, 3% success? They're around 90%. So there is a way to make this actually work. And uh, so if you build a valuable business, then where is this value? Well, most businesses are services. They're not that many companies that are making product, but even if they do, they may be making it offshore. So their value is tied up in some form of intellectual property. That could be patents, but very often it is brands. And if you look at all of the businesses that have sold for you know billions of dollars, which, by the way, have been started by one or two people, so don't forget this applies to every single business, they are almost always brand transactions. I counted up the uh, last uh, 100 or so, and there's maybe one that was was not a brand transaction, and that was a very specialized situation. So if you're building a company, you clearly want to build its value. Now, as it turns out, if you're building value, you're building that brand connection, and you know the, the uh, example we always turn to is Apple, but there are so many companies that fit the bill, but Apple's really simple. If you had a choice of owning Apple or Samsung, which would you choose? Well, Samsung is bigger, but Apple is more profitable. And Samsung maybe has two-thirds, or the Android world has two-thirds of the phones sold, and Apple has uh, 10 to 30%, but they make much more money on every single one of them. So which is the one you want to be? If you make your company valuable, it will be more profitable. But if you make your company profitable, there's no reason that it will be valuable unless you deliberately make that effort. All right. Michael, I want everybody to know how they could learn more about you, even reach out to you, uh, and where they can get your book. So to that end, please take uh, you know, 30, 40 seconds and share that information with us. Okay. The, the book, uh, The Good Brand, which I remind you was written out of desperation, but it's an easy read and it's not for uh, lawyers, it's for business people. Uh, it's available on, guess what, Amazon.com. It is also in electronic form on Smashwords.com. I can be reached at, well, my short email address is mlasky, and that's without an E, at mlasky.com. And there's a website that has a lot of the information we talked about today and videos, and that is brandcentering.com. All right. I want to thank you, Michael. The book, again, is The Good Brand. Um, and it, as Michael just said, it, it is an easy read, but it is a very important read. And and I, and I think anyone and everyone uh, who has ever thought about even a, a, I, I'm going to do a business part-time in my home because sometimes that part-time in your home prospers beyond your belief should read this book. I want to thank you, Michael, for your willingness to share your work with us today. And, uh, you know, even if you dodged the free legal, I got enough out of it to make it more worthwhile, sir. All right, we've come to the end of another episode of Provocative Enlightenment. I want to thank all of you for joining us today. I hope you enjoyed our show, and we'll join us again next week, same time and same place. And do tell your friends. Let's have them join us as well. Okay, until next time, wherever you are in the world, remember, believing in yourself always matters. 
Provocative Enlightenment has been brought to you by Progressive Awareness Research and other sponsors. Provocative Enlightenment is a syndicated show and appears on other networks. For a schedule of showtimes, visit ProvocativeEnlightenment.com. If you're interested in becoming a sponsor, write to Eldon at EldonTaylor.com.